The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So it's been an amazing two weeks of testimony on the Hill concerning the Equifax breach. There's a lot of drama playing out in the cybersecurity world. Uh, we learned a lot of new details about the breach, uh, more details about Equifax's business model as well, uh, which politicians are calling for a lot of changes to. But yet I think we still haven't learned some of the answers to some of the key questions that we absolutely need to know so that everyone can use that information to protect their own networks. Um, look, we got an amazing show for you today. Maybe the best show yet. As our guest today, is, he's not only a friend of mine, but he is hands down one of the most respected and well-known cybersecurity professionals in the entire industry. Jim Routh is going to be here with us today. Jim is the Chief Security Officer of Aetna and the Chair of the National Health ISAC. So Jim's got a really big job. Aetna is part of the Fortune 100 and is the third largest health insurer in the United States, capturing approximately 6% of the entire market, insuring about 20 million people and bringing in over $51 billion in premium revenue in 2015. So Jim is so well-respected in the cybersecurity industry that he chairs the National Health ISAC, one of the 16 ISACs in the country that represent critical infrastructure sectors. I've known him for a long time. I go way back with Jim to our J.P. Morgan Chase days. And I can tell you this about him. He's one of the smartest guys in the cybersecurity space you'll ever meet. And there's never a time when I hear him speak that I don't learn something new. So I've been getting a slew of comments about the high quality of guests we've had on this show. And I'm going to keep that coming for you. Jim is on deck and will be joining us in both the second and third segments of the show. But before we get into all that, Let's take it from the beginning with some historical background on Equifax and its business model so that we can help frame the discussion for the rest of the show because it seems that the questions from the congressional committees are insinuating and sometimes flat out stating that the business model employed by Equifax and, and other uh, credit uh, bureaus leaves the company no motivation to stand up a world-class information security initiative. So some senators even accusing Equifax of having the worst security in the industry in their opening statements, although I didn't hear them reference any research on how they came up to that conclusion other than the abundantly obvious situation around the breach, which I get it, right? I get it. But first, let's examine some of the facts. 
It's been widely reported in the news that anger towards Equifax has been percolating in the consumer market for some time, as Equifax hasn't necessarily won the public trust over the last five years or so. According to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, from October of 2012 to September of 2017, Equifax was the subject of more than 57,000 consumer complaints, with most complaints relating to incomplete, inaccurate, outdated, or misattributed information held by the company. And let's face it, folks, I mean, this 57,000 number only represents the number of people who actually took the initiative to complain. The number of dissatisfied customers, we can assume, is probably most likely very much higher. I mean, how many times are you completely dissatisfied with the service you get from a company, but never take the initiative or have the time to formally complain about it? So in general, news agencies around the world are reporting that it seems consumers were already dismayed with Equifax for a bunch of different reasons. And this breach just threw gasoline on the fire. So now the general public, and it seems the senators that represent them, want heads to roll, and I get it. No, I totally get that. And and I understand the frustration and the anger. Um, But we should find out what happened, right? We should get all the facts before we start passing judgment on anyone. And one thing that I know about the cybersecurity industry, a great many people seem willing to pass judgment on people or processes or technologies that are employed, and even whole strategies before they are really privy to all the facts. So let's go over what we know. Multiple news organizations are reporting on these complaints to the, to the credit bureaus to start to tell a story. I mean, look at what consumers were complaining about. Incomplete, inaccurate, outdated, or misattributed information or data. Right? They're talking about the handling of data. And senators, one after the other, were slamming Equifax's nonchalant attitude towards the accuracy of that data. The purpose of emphasizing these statements, I assume, was to put on display the Equifax culture and attitude towards handling of consumer data. Now, how the company really prioritized the accuracy of their data and most likely the actual integrity of their data from a technology perspective. Um, Those are two different things. In my mind are two different things and there are slight nuances there. So let me explain what I think the senators were trying to accomplish and what they were saying. The second part of any basic CIA cybersecurity model is integrity. And and no, I don't mean the Central Intelligence Agency when I say CIA. I know a lot of people obviously think of Central Intelligence Agency when you hear CIA. But cybersecurity professionals often refer to the three pillars of cybersecurity as CIA. The confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. And these are the basic tenets and goals of a uh, cybersecurity initiative. So when I look at these tens of thousands of consumer complaints about the accuracy of the data they hold, it's a little different than what we mean when we talk about the integrity of the data from an information security perspective. Right? So the difference is this. In a company, the business is responsible for ensuring that the data they are putting into their systems is accurate upon data entry. However, the technology and, and, and cybersecurity teams commonly located in, in corporate departments are responsible for ensuring the solutions they put in place maintain the consistency, accuracy, and trustworthiness of the data from a technology perspective over its entire life cycle. So now I get where the senators were going with this. They were trying to show a cultural mindset around the attitude. Equifax takes us towards their data in general. Okay, fine. You know, I understand. But I wanted our listeners to understand that from a cybersecurity perspective, 
There's a difference between the accuracy of the data from a business perspective and the integrity of the data from a cybersecurity perspective. So moving on with the theme of the accuracy of Equifax's data, according to 2012 FTC report, one in five credit reports contains an error, meaning 20% of consumer reports are inaccurate. And the hearings also brought out the fact that this year, the CFPB settled with Equifax for quote unquote, ripping off customers and consumers for offering free credit scores when in actuality they were signing up for a 16 month subscription service. And finally, according to the CFPB, Equifax ranks number two overall in consumer complaints, only behind Wells Fargo, who was recently chastised for opening thousands of accounts without consumer knowledge. Um, the other two credit bureaus, TransUnion and Experian, ranked three and four in complaints to the CFPB, right behind Equifax, sort of painting a really bad picture for the entire credit industry, and not just Equifax. So the CEO of Equifax, Mr. Richard Smith, also received criticism from several senators on the placement of certain legal clauses that say, well, hey, by the way, not only can't you sue us if we screw up this website, that we established as a result of the breach, but you can't sue us for any damages you sustain as a result of the breach itself either. He also received a tremendous amount of criticism during the hearings on the placement of those clauses and the fine print of the service agreements consumers see when visiting the response website. So some senators were determined to point out that although the legal clause was removed within 24 hours of being posted following the public outcry and an inquiry from the Attorney General of the State of New York, that the clause still remains in other products that the firm sells buried deep inside the terms of service where senators claim no one ever reads them. So in my view, uh, Senators Al Franken and Elizabeth Warren came extremely prepared for the hearings, especially compared to other senators. Um, Senator Franken noted that the data brokers are the perfect target for cyber criminals and that the Senate Banking Committee has addressed this scenario in the past, meaning they have spoken about the worst case scenario for a company who trades on the information of people with whom they have no direct relationship or no specific set of obligations. Senator Franken noted that the worst case scenario they played out in other committee discussions is now our new reality. And I quote, let's not downplay what this breach means for national security. He said, something that we have been emphasizing about cybersecurity in general on this show, including the targeting of Americans for blackmail and the ability for foreign governments, nation states, organized crime groups, terrorist organizations to use the stolen data to influence future elections in the United States. So Senator Franklin was also correct in noting the numerous ways that this data could be used by criminals, including financial fraud, tax fraud medical identity theft, and even driver's license impersonation, among other things. As he stated, the breach threatened the financial security and livelihood of his constituency. Um, one of the things that he noted that, you know, during his statement that I thought was really interesting was that according to a Department of Justice survey, the average victim of identity theft loses $1,343 in stolen assets and expenses when their ID gets stolen. Times that by 145 million people, and well, the damage is unthinkable. Senator Franken wasn't done. Uh, he rounded out his statement by pouncing on the company's business model, telling Mr. Smith, quote, you don't care because you don't have to care. 
referring to the fact that consumers can't choose to walk away from Equifax because Equifax comes into possession of consumers' data from other companies and financial institutions and not from the consumers themselves. So in essence, the people hurt by this event can't prevent Equifax from managing their data in the future and are pretty powerless to influence behavior at Equifax through consumer decisions. But I thought Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, was especially prepared, and, and, and she had some uh, very good information in the way she laid it out, and to be honest, it was quite impressive. Um, she started out by noting towards the beginning of her statement that Mr. Smith was quoted as stating before the Equifax breach that, quote, fraud is a huge opportunity for us. It is a massive growing business for us. She went on uh, to point out that the likelihood of fraud that will occur as a result of the breach in Equifax's own security failures has actually created more business opportunities for Equifax to make money. And she got Mr. Smith to agree that Equifax makes a great deal of money when consumers purchase fraud prevention services from them and from their business partners. So here's how it works. First, Equifax is offering one year of free credit monitoring for all consumers as a result of the hack. But in the cybersecurity business, professionals know that when large amounts of data like this are compromised by sophisticated thieves, the threat that exists because of the compromise lingers for years. Years. And in this case, possibly forever. So one f year of free credit monitoring doesn't begin to scratch the surface in terms of protecting the consumer from harm as a result of the breach. I mean, it means absolutely nothing, really. I mean, nothing. Your, your turn to be defrauded might not be for years. So consumers are going to have to start paying for this credit monitoring after the first year is up. So Senator Warren did some simple math. Uh, she claimed that so far, 7.5 million consumers have signed up for credit monitoring because of the breach. So if just 1 million of those consumers chose to continue the monitoring after the first free year at the standard rate of $17 a month, that would equate to more than $200 million worth of revenue that Equifax will make off their own security failure. And that's only in the second year. That's in the second 12 months. So if we look at like a five-year outlook for just this one product, Equifax could stand to make in excess of a billion dollars as a result of their own security failures. And that's just on this one product. That's right. You heard me. One billion dollars in revenue. But wait, there's more. Senator Warren wasn't done pointing out how Equifax makes money from their own breach. LifeLock, another company who sells credit monitoring, has now seen a tenfold increase in enrollment since Equifax announced the breach. So according to filings with the SEC, LifeLock purchases credit monitoring services from Equifax. So when someone buys credit monitoring from LifeLock because their fear of being victimized by cyber criminals as a result of the Equifax breach... LifeLock pays Equifax, and Equifax makes money. So Senator Warren was quick to point out that since the second Equifax announced the breach, they've been making money off consumers who are victimized as a result of the breach and are purchasing credit monitoring services through LifeLock. But wait, there's even more. Senator Warren pointed out that a third way that Equifax would profit from the breach is when Equifax sells fraud prevention products to businesses and government agencies. But according to Mr. Smith, it's primarily just government agencies now. Um, and that is the third way that Equifax makes money off their own breach, according to Senator Warren. So Senator Warren also stated that, of interesting note, I thought was 
Very sad that the average recovery for data breaches as a result of litigation is less than $2 per consumer. So I don't know where she got that number from. But since Senator Franklin noted that the average loss per consumer is $1,343 for identity theft, and Senator Warren noted that the average recovery for data breaches as a result of litigation is less than $2 per consumer, that is just a horrible scenario for consumers who initiate legal action to be made whole again. I mean, that's just a horrible situation. And consumers really have no other recourse. But as it turns out, Senator Warren stated that Equifax actually does have recourse. She pointed out that like many other companies, it would appear that Equifax has cybersecurity insurance or other types of insurance that would make them whole for a great deal of any payment that they are required to make to consumers as a result of any legal actions against them. And lastly, according to the Washington Post, late Thursday afternoon of last week, Equifax took one of its incident response web pages offline following a report that an independent security researcher was prompted to download fraudulent Adobe Flash updates when he visited the Equifax website to contest his credit report. The researcher determined that when those updates were clicked, adware would infect a visitor's computer. The researcher had encountered those malicious links during multiple visits to the company's website. At the time, Equifax postman Wyatt Jeffries stated that we are aware of the situation identified on the Equifax.com website and the credit report assistance link and our IT and security teams are looking into the matter and out of an abundance of caution we have temporarily taken this page offline. When it becomes available or we have more information to share, we will. We'll be back to get our special guest Jim Rouse's views on what's going on with the Equifax breach after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Starting and running a business can be hard. Moving forward and keeping the excitement alive can be difficult to do. I'm Joe Hosman. If you are experiencing the struggles of opening or sustaining a business or even knowing you need a change in your life, you want to tune in to my show, Go For It. My guests and I will show you the steps needed to build something positive in your week. Listen every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to Make a Difference, every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Chief Security Officer of Aetna and the Chair of the National Health ISAC, Jim Rouse. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, George. Nice to be on the show. Great, great. So, Jim, there's a lot of buzz about the Equifax breach this week. What's your perspective on the implications of the public breach for private enterprises? Well, some of the things that make uh, Equifax unique is their product is essentially uh, information about consumers. Uh, and uh, they sell that product uh, to enterprises with a valuable service, and uh, it's a business model that's well-established, been around for a long time. Uh, they, Because of that, the breach has tremendous implications in their ability to protect product, in this case, the information about consumers, uh, and it makes it controversial, and it's frankly worth uh, the debate and discussion to understand uh, what steps can be taken, should be taken going forward in this particular business model. But um, there's one part of the Equifax breach that actually has the most significant implications to an enterprise, uh, and uh, it's not talked about uh, a lot and, and really should be, and that is that 145 million consumer records are now in the hands of criminals who can use that information to bypass uh, conventional authentication controls and essentially uh, enable account takeover and commit fraud. And that has a bigger implication to uh, enterprises uh, simply because uh, more and more uh, we're finding that uh, uh, password reset and account registration are the two uh, core processes that are at risk when criminals have a lot of demographic information. And... uh, that demographic information is used to bypass challenge questions. It's used to, uh, you know, answer security questions and essentially, uh, uh, you know, be more educated about the end user than they, and sometimes the end user is. And, and uh, that's what the, the downstream implications. This breach, because of the size and scope of it, is contributing towards the acceleration of the obsolescence of uh, passwords as the single-factor uh, authentication, uh, and it, uh, it's accelerating the need for private enterprises to change their authentication capabilities and enhance that over time. So that, to me, that's the biggest impact uh, that the Equifax breach has on private enterprise, and um, it's not necessarily being discussed, but it, it, it's where the biggest impact is from my perspective. So is it even possible to protect these large droves of PII, like the data that was stolen in the Equifax breach? I mean, I know you mentioned about how this is, you know, the the security in-depth posture that we have around the data now is sort of not the solution. What is the solution? Uh, So the simple answer is yes, it is quite possible to protect large volumes of consumer information. Uh, And there are uh, tried and true established methods, and there are some uh, emerging unconventional controls uh, that are uh, effective as well. And so uh, the, the whole idea that, that 
you know, no enterprise can protect their information is uh, not one I'm ready to subscribe to at this point. That uh, There's no question that the threats have become more sophisticated. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I had told you, George, that uh, in May, if I had said that there were going to be two uh, security events that would dramatically change the threat landscape and impact private enterprise across 90 countries uh, using uh, weaponized cyber weapons that were created by your tax dollars and used by the two nation states most least likely to use them against uh, targets being North Korea and Russia, you'd say that's absolutely impossible, will never happen. And in May, you would have been right. <laughs> uh, in June, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and so the level of sophistication today in, in terms of cyber weapons is, uh, is exponentially greater, and, and that's what makes it challenging. And frankly, when there are major breaches, a lot of times the media and government officials treat the enterprise as, um, as instead of a victim, as, uh, as uh, a guilty you know, suspect that, uh, uh, that, that should be impugned publicly. And, uh, in, and that may or may not be the case uh, in this particular breach uh, with Equifax, but uh, I'm not, I don't have an opinion about that. What I do have an opinion about is that uh, more and more we have to realize that uh, enterprises that get breached uh, large, uh, small, and medium enterprises um, are victims, uh, and uh, and not uh, you know, and, and shouldn't be chastised for uh, their lack of uh, being able to protect the data. The, the criminals are highly sophisticated with a lot of sophisticated tools that never existed uh, in the past, and keeping up with uh, uh, changing the the uh, threat landscape is, uh, takes time. So. Uh, so it's not uh, it's something every enterprise has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've seen people out there from the media actually uh, clamoring for the incarceration of these CEOs, um, yeah. and and it's just I don't know. It's very troubling uh, to me when I see that. Um, speaking of the media, I mean, they've been really getting on the companies about the time that passes between the day they discover the breach and the day the day that the company actually makes the breach public. I mean, does the media, in your estimation, understand how long it takes to conduct a forensic investigation of a breach to even start to get an idea of what happened? Uh, so the answer, simple answer is no. The media doesn't really understand that, but most people don't understand that. Uh, and, you know, the, the Verizon data breach report that uh, is, uh, has been a foundation for driving uh, security practices for the last several, at least the last decade, and you and I you know, read that all the time and, uh, and and make decisions based on some of the data and statistics in there. Uh, the average time between breach detection and uh, the identification of a breach is something like a couple, 250 days, right? You know, 270 days, something like that. So uh, unfortunately, the, the reality is with the level of sophistication uh, of uh, criminals that use sophisticated techniques that are actually designed not to be detected, um, that uh, it, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to understand once the initial information comes in on a, a potential breach of how significant that is. And we, the enterprise, has to be responsible in sharing that information and balancing the need to share that quickly with getting it right. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. The uh, WannaCry 
when it hit uh, in uh, Asia and then Europe and then moved into uh, impact uh, the United States, uh, early uh, intelligence uh, suggested that uh, it was being spread via uh, email, being phishing uh, attempts. And that wasn't true. It, was, it wasn't even close. It was uh, SMB that was essentially the uh, uh, the way the the, the uh, malware was being spread. Uh, when Apache or not Apache came about two weeks later, it was uh, it said you had to patch because SMB was the uh, uh, the attack vector. Well, that wasn't true either. Uh, it was MeDoc. So uh, the point is that uh, cybersecurity incidents. Uh, are uh, you know are really complex to understand and uh, you know you got to put your best resources on it and, and it's the most urgent thing to the company but it takes days in the best case scenario to understand the scope of a cyber breach and often and I'd say it's common for it to take you know many weeks uh, to understand the full scope uh, so there's a balancing act between uh, going public with information of a breach and be able to provide uh, the information that's necessary for the public to consume that. Uh, we, we think of five major things. The facts, what happened, the business impact of who was impacted by the uh, breach, the root cause that, uh, of how that breach happened, the corrective actions that have to be put in place, and most importantly, the lessons learned about how to improve the environment going forward. Those five things are part of our incident response process and I, and I think are probably pretty generic and pr part of most enterprises. Uh, but going through those five things are essential before the organization can uh, correctly identify the impact and what's being done about it. And that's ultimately what consumers want. They want to hear. They want to know that, you know, how did the attack happen and what's being changed to prevent that from happening in the future, and how are you going to make us whole in that? That's essentially what they what they're interested in. So I was listening to the testimony of Equifax's CEO Richard Smith, and he said that they didn't even become aware that the data trove of PII had been exfiltrated from their systems until late August. But he continues to get ripped in the in the in the media. You know, that he didn't notify consumers much earlier when he didn't even know that the data actually was gone until very late in August. And, uh, and then they started formulating how they were going to, you know, announce the breach and notify uh, customers and businesses. So if a company's breached, should they announce that they've been breached right away and then release the results of the investigation as they come to light? Or how should they handle that? Is it better? Because if, you, if they announce the breach first without having all the full facts, then they have to come out and make more announcements and more announcements. And, it's, it's a, a reputation and brand risk decision. I mean, how, how, what, what should they do? Well, there's a balancing act because we've got regulatory requirements for notifying uh, uh, regulators of a breach. We've got uh, individual uh, institutions uh, and agreements that we have with those institutions for notifying them. Uh, so those are fixed constraints uh, that, that we work with or work within. And then we balance the need of notification with providing the right level of information. And we typically think of it from a practitioner standpoint, which means that if my peer, uh, a, uh, a, I'll just use you in this case, if, uh, if you work for a company that was impacted by a breach that we had, 
and I was sitting, uh, you know, or talking to you on the phone and sharing information, um, I'd want to give you the facts to uh, make you understand what happened and, and how we discovered it. I'd want to uh, tell you what the impact is to you. Um, I want to tell you what the smoking gun and the root cause is, if I if I could. Uh, and then, and if I didn't know the exact root cause, I'd want to tell you what the hypothesis that we had that we were going to either prove or disprove uh, to identify the root cause. I want to tell you exactly what the steps we've taken and what steps we plan to take in terms of uh, containment and corrective actions uh, to improve the processes going forward. And lastly, the lessons learned uh, from this and, you know, why it's unlikely that's going to happen uh, again because uh, we've changed, made some changes. So that's, that's the level of information. Now, um, there's, you know, we may not have the level of depth necessary in all five components uh, when by the time we have to and op- are obligated to notify uh, our, uh, you know, our, our, and, and meet our contractual requirements. But um, we, you know, I always think of having a conversation with a practitioner, a security practitioner, and what they would want to uh, know and understand. And, uh, uh, and so that's kind of how, uh, how we do that balancing act. So one of the things that the media and actually a lot of cybersecurity professionals have been very critical of is Equifax's response to the breach. So how important is it to conduct wargaming exercises to prepare for a major incident like this? Yeah, so we practice our incident response process um, continually. Um, we just did one yesterday, um, and we create scenarios based on what the likely risk factors are, and we include, uh, it's a cross-functional uh, team that uh, participates, and communications is a key part of that for any breach that potentially becomes public. Uh, and we practice following uh, our methodology and we learn something every time we do. Uh, so we had a scenario uh, yesterday that uh, we were working where uh, it was uh, initiated based on a paste bin dump that had uh, member information and somebody uh, who had d- uh, uh, initiated the dump was uh, holding us uh, ransom to Bitcoin uh, and threatening to uh, go public uh, with the, with the, uh, the the message that they owned our network, and so in those kinds of situations, uh, you have to get all you have to get legal privacy uh, communications embedded in the incident response process, and they have to practice that to have uh, preparation of uh, communication tools that are available to not only know the tools but have the content ready to go out uh, and to know who makes which decision at which point in time to share information with different stakeholder groups. Uh, We have a whole escalation process internally that goes all the way up to the board of directors. All of these things have to be practiced to learn how to apply them in a crisis situation uh, and create a set of processes and run books um, that are well understood, you know, at multiple levels in the organization. So from my standpoint, uh, practicing incident. incidents are the most valuable tool for us to learn what works and doesn't work in terms of effective controls. And as much as incidents are painful uh, and have business impact, they are the most valuable way to learn 
what controls are working effectively. And we celebrate the fact that we have incidents in the context of understanding what adjustments and changes to make to our practices uh, to both contain and, and recover, but also to prevent uh, the incidents going forward. And practice is what allows us uh, to do that. So we manufacture synthetic scenarios that we test, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost uh, monthly uh, across the company. Uh, and some of the tests are uh, easy and uh, artificially done in, uh, in tabletop kind of exercise, and some of them uh, involve all of the company's resources, uh, and again, all the way up to the board of directors uh, that are involved in some. So uh, I'd say, George, it's absolutely essential uh, to run incident response uh, tests based on scenarios tied to top risks. Uh, that are modified and changed over time and are cross-functional in nature in any enterprise, large, medium, or small. So we have about a minute before the break. How, how hard is it to patch your network before the bad guys leverage the vulnerability, and how hard is it to scan for and discover these uh, vulnerabilities and applications that have not been patched properly? Uh, so these days, it's actually pretty easy to find uh, vulnerabilities in your current configurations. And so the challenge is to identify which vulnerabilities are associated with the deployment of that technology versus vulnerabilities that were discovered post-deployment of the technology. And in the, in the first case, that's a process that needs to be fixed where you deploy technology, you test it for vulnerabilities, immediately have a standard uh, template that, uh, that's used in the deployment of the technology uh, that incorporates all the right resiliency configuration settings uh, and, and is tested uh, at the time of deployment. Uh, if a vulnerability is discovered post-deployment that's change management, and that's a different process, and the, and the root cause for that uh, is uh, in the change management process when we make changes, we have to make sure that we're updating the, the uh, software the right uh, patch level. The automation today available to do both of those things is far greater and more mature than any other time in my career, and so the answer is, yeah, all of that can be automated. Now, in the mid to small size organizations, the, the cost justification uh, isn't necessarily there uh, uh, to do that at scale where we have, you know, thousands and thousands of devices that we manage. Uh, it's obviously there. But the tools are without a doubt there. Uh, the patch management processes are, are there. Uh, what has to, with the foundation of both those things, are the asset management inventory uh, that, uh, that has to be there. Uh, and uh, and that's probably the place to start for most organizations. All right, so we're going to take some time for a commercial break. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, Chief Security Officer Edna, and Chair of the National Health ISAC, Jim Rapp. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. 
These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity, and we're going to continue our conversation with the Chief Security Officer at Aetna and National Health ISAC Chair, Jim Ralph. So, Jim, how do you view the White House's stance on the use of SSNs as unique identifiers? So, the comments that were made a couple of days ago, uh, from my perspective, represent uh, responsibility and thoughtfulness uh, that uh, will engender some fundamental change uh, across certainly federal agencies uh, and potentially more broadly than that. Uh, is absolutely the right thing. Uh, we have to shrink the attack surface. Uh, we learned this in banking. Uh, when you eliminate the use of a social security number as a unique identifier, you shrink the attack surface of its most monetizable data element. Uh, the same thing has to be applied across other industries, and uh, I'll speak for healthcare uh, specifically. Uh, absolutely essential to shrinking the attack surface of healthcare uh, to discontinue the use of uh, using a social security number as a unique identifier. Uh, it should be, and it's not a great tool to be used in uh, authentication either. There are other choices, there are better choices, and uh, the more we can uh, eliminate the use of social security number uh, in across the healthcare ecosystem, the harder it is for criminals to monetize that information uh, and the better it is for consumers. Uh, so um, uh, I, I think it's a uh, absolutely the right thing to, to do. Aetna, as an example, in the last three years, has eliminated 7 billion instances of social security numbers within our environment. Uh, and uh, by doing that, uh, we have a, a smaller attack surface. Now, it requires us to work with our plan sponsors, who are the employers, and to work with vendors. 
to uh, ensure that they follow the same practices. Um, and we've had a positive effect in both uh, over time. We still got more work to do, uh, but it's, uh, you know, a lot of people say oh, it'll never happen. It's, uh, it's not possible. It is possible. Uh, it is happening. Uh, and it is the absolute right thing, and uh, I appreciate their direction from the White House in this case. So you've been in security for a decade and a half. I mean, what, what are some of the changes that you've observed over your time? You know, the biggest change that I've noticed, uh, George, and I'll tell the story, uh, and I'm sure you can appreciate it. When I started in security on my first day, I realized I had to give a presentation to the OCC on the security strategy for the company I was working for, American Express. Uh, and I realized I didn't know what to, I, I was over my head. I didn't, I didn't know how to prepare for that. It, it was a, a real challenge. And so what I did is I contacted uh, somebody to give me a phone number that said, if you get in over your head, call this guy. So I did. I called Steve Katz. And he didn't know who I was, and I didn't know who he was. But uh, I said, Steve, I'm in trouble. I need help. And he said, no problem. I'll be right over. He came over with two other CISOs from other financial service firms. And they basically said, look, we'll put this presentation together for you and uh, you'll deliver it. And they did. They, put, they prepared the entire presentation. They said, okay, now you deliver it to us. We'll pretend we're the OCC and we'll, we'll role play here. And, they, and I did that. And about four hours later, they were, they were gone. They're like, oh, you're good. And the next day I did the presentation and it worked. Uh, and, and it was successful. Now, the reason it worked had nothing to do with me. It had to do with them. They put together... Uh, the information in a, using a formulaic approach. And the formula was identify a risk uh, uh, framework and uh, associated risk controls uh, and standards within that framework. Align your business practices and IT practices with those risk controls. Get a third party to attest to the effectiveness of your controls uh, and declare victory. That's essentially what the model was. And that model, we all learned, and frankly, all of the audit and third-party governance uh, foundations today are built on the same thing. They're built on the very same idea and construct, uh, you know, that was existed 15 years ago. Now, um, what's interesting is that the one stakeholder group that didn't buy into that model back then were the criminals. And the criminals have constantly changed and evolved their tactics, and that's caused us in risk-based uh, security programs that adjust and change our tactics, so it's a continual process. So today, a resilient organiza organization is measured by how often they're changing their controls, where 15 years ago, if you had to change your controls every day, it meant your controls weren't mature and, and you didn't have a, a resilient program. Today, it's actually an indicator of, uh, of resilience. And the interesting thing is most of the controls that are changing today are unconventional controls. They, they're not part of the risk framework. Um, I'll give you an example. If, uh, on phishing, turns out that uh, phishing, number one threat vector, uh, conventional wisdom says we should train our users to recognize a phishing email and therefore not trust that email and uh, not open it, click on a link or whatever else. And the reality is we're teaching our people not to trust email, and email is core to the fabric of any enterprise. So that doesn't really sound like a sustainable model, but it happens to be in a conventional control. Well, it turns out there's four different types of phishing and four different types of uh, tactics related to phishing. And the first one most commonly used is spoofing a domain. If we use DMARC on our outbound authentication of email, we've eliminated the possibility of a spoof domain getting to a consumer from a particular enterprise. 
So every enterprise should do that. It actually saves money uh, for most enterprises because it, it, you get a lift, a positive lift on any of your outbound email campaign. In our case, we get a 10% lift in click-through rate every year just by using something that protects uh, consumers uh, from email. Now, that's an unconventional control. And what's different today is more and more of the controls that we're deploying and changing on a regular basis aren't part of a standard risk framework. Um, so I call them unconventional, but essentially we're creating them to create friction for the bad guys. And the pace and acceleration of changes in threat actor tactics is driving more and more change on a continual basis in the controls and the evolution of the controls and that's a fundamental change from where it was 15 years ago. So there's a lot going on in the cyber intelligence space with all the collaborations between these cyber criminals. Have you observed any significant changes recently in the threat landscape? Yeah, so there, uh, there's certain changes that I call tectonic changes, um, barring a term from geology, but essentially a tectonic shift in the threat landscape is when there's a change in tactics that has a fundamental uh, impact on our control frameworks and controls going forward. Now, an example of that is in 2016, 3 billion credentials were harvested. That's login credentials, user ID and, and password. 3 billion were harvested and you know, now available to uh, uh, the dark web to the, to the uh, criminals. And so what ha was ha is happening is essentially the erosion of uh, b binary authentication controls, uh, which can't keep pace with all that demographic data and login data. So there's something called the uh, credential stuffing, where if I used a tool called Century MBA, I could take 10,000 uh, logins from, say, Yahoo that you know, just recently claimed they lost 5 billion of them, right? So... I can take 10,000 of those. I can tr try them out in any other domain using this tool, and I'm going to get a 2% hit because we use the same passwords across one domain to another, largely because we can't remember all the passwords as individuals uh, that we have to use. So, so we use similar ones. So I'm going to get a 2% hit. Now, if I take the uh, password uh, that I use in the, and, and adjust it in this uh, tool by putting the domain name in front of it, so like uh, Aetna password123 as an example, I'm going to get a 4% hit. That's 400 accounts that I now own after, uh, after getting you know, 10,000 in the black market. Well, the fact is the 10,000 credentials that I can buy in the back black market, there's no limitation. I could get up to um, you know, a billion of them uh, if I had the resources to do that. And then I could get 2% or 4% of that I'd own the accounts going forward. So that's an example of a tectonic shift. The more recent one is what we uh, have talked about as ransomware, which really wasn't ransomware. It was WannaCry and Petya. And the core of both of those things came from our tax dollars at work in terms of uh, Shadow Broker releasing uh, the tools of uh, the NSA that were then redeployed by both uh, North Korea and Russia to make political statements that impacted private enterprise across 90 countries uh, in a matter of days. Uh, and uh, that shows today that we have to change and adjust based on very, very high level of sophistication in the weaponry that's being used by nation states that's impacting uh, private enterprise outside of uh, government. And, 
Um, and that means that we have to improve our ability to manage privileged users so that models can, in real time, prevent the type of attacks that can knock over 15,000 servers in 90 seconds, which happened to one such enterprise that was impacted by Petya. Uh, and that means model-driven security uh, applied to privilege uh, user monitoring. Uh, and we have a capability in production today where a model determines variation of a behavior privileged user, and if that variation is great enough, automatically no human intervention, that privilege is uh, revoked and an incident is initiated, uh, and all of that's done without any human intervention. And that's kind of what we're moving towards. So with all this going on, when you do your strategic planning and you look five years out, what are some of the interesting trends of cybersecurity that you have to take under consideration for the strategic plan? Um, so I look three years out, and I, I do it every year. So every year it's a rolling three-year uh, cycle in terms of our security uh, strategy. And I usually plot technology adoption as one of the key drivers. So, you know, certainly today um, we're going to think about IoT uh, implications to any enterprise, and we're going to think about cloud in terms of moving more and more data to the cloud. Uh, and those two fundamental changes in uh, technology adoption uh, are driving a lot of the need. And if we can get out in front of that and have controls that uh, do authentication, that do configuration management, that do encryption of the data uh, at rest and in delivery, uh, as well as um, uh, uh, configuration management uh, and, uh, and, and regular scanning. If we can do all those things and assign accountabilities in the right model for cloud, we can actually do a better job protecting data in the cloud than what we do in our, our enterprise today. Uh, and that, that's an example of what would be baked into our three-year plan. How often do you update that three-year plan? How often is that revisited and then disseminated to the team? Every year. So it's done annually? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Every year we update it for three years out. In terms of your strategic planning, what are you doing to address the, the crisis in cyber talent across the country, actually, across the globe in, in this case. I mean, yeah, it's, George, I'm going to tell you something that's going <laughs> to, uh, it's unusual. Um, we have no trouble finding world class talent. Now, having said that, uh, the reason we have no trouble uh, is because we make some trade offs. And some of those trade offs are we will hire experienced talent where they live and not necessarily where we want them to work. Uh, so we have a, you know, we can get talent that we don't normally do. We also, have 40% of our security staff are women against an industry back, uh, backdrop of uh, 11%. 23% uh, are people of color and 17% are veterans. So we hire diverse talent uh, and, and, and are very effective at it. Uh, and we teach them what they want to learn. Uh, we give 10% of their time as free time to do whatever they want to learn, whatever they want. So the only prerequisite we have when we hire talent is intellectual curiosity because we can't teach that. Everything else we can teach. All the techniques that we use, the, you know, the data science that goes into cybersecurity today, we could teach all of that. Um, so if we have somebody that has intellectual curiosity, we can, uh, they can thrive and grow and develop. Uh, and uh, we really don't have much problem uh, either retaining talent or attracting talent. And I, I recognize that 
that that's indifferent to the fact the facts are that there's fewer and fewer people to hire uh, in terms of the skill and competencies that, that uh, that's necessary, and the fact that demand continues to go up. So those are definite marketplace uh, constraints and challenges that we have to manage to. But uh, I think if we teach people what they want to learn and make them more marketable. Um, then I think there's a, a way of having a sustainable model for talent management and security. So do you think that companies that have a, a geolocation strategy with a strict compliance and hiring talent in particular cities, do you think that handicaps them, gives you an advantage because you're much more flexible in terms of allowing talent yeah. to work where they want to live? Yeah, yeah. location is big. Uh, yeah, let, let's face it. I mean, People at, in different times in their career, they're willing to make trade-offs on where they choose to live versus uh, where they work. Uh, and if you can, you know, hire people where they want to live, you got a tremendous advantage. Uh, so absolutely. So we got about a minute left, and I know that you manage both physical and cyber responsibilities. Tell us what it means to lead a converged function in both the physical yeah, and cyber the, security the, world. The reason we have a converged function is for talent management reasons. We think cyber professionals will learn more and be more practical if they understand physical security. And we think physical security resources are going to learn more if they learn cyber. I think there's a lot of commonality. So we look at seven areas of uh, convergence, we call it. Uh, so things like uh, communications and education. We do that for security, not physical or cyber. We do it you know, for all of security. Um, incident response, uh, we combine physical business resiliency and uh, cyber incident response into a single incident response process. Uh, uh, infrastructure management, uh, IT management, where we're looking for shared infrastructure between uh, our uh, physical SOC and our uh, cyber SOC. Uh, right now, those things are largely independent. We'll look for ways to, to bring that uh, together over time. Uh, still protecting or uh, recognizing that, you know, cyber incident response is different than physical incident response, but there's some, you know, the, the infrastructure and the 25 4x7 support can be uh, consolidated. So um, from our standpoint, there are basic areas of uh, convergence that make sense uh, that, um, that we're embracing first. But ultimately, more than anything else, it's about talent management and getting our uh, cyber and physical talent to be at a higher level skill and uh, therefore more marketable as well and uh, and uh, more resilient as an enterprise. So, look, that about does it for us. I mean, unfortunately, we're out of time. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. This has been a very enlightening conversation. Hey, George, for you, anytime. Hey, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it, brother. All right, okay. that does it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, just a reminder in the event that you missed an episode, every show is available for replay 24-7, 365 on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay vigilant out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.